The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 15 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, your bi-weekly trip back in time to explore the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Wishing it was still 1995 so I could write and draw a Seinfeld parody featuring the Image Comics founders called Liefeld. I'm Adam. And convinced that a promotional event called The Breath of Superman would have been the perfect way for DC Comics to get some sponsorship cash from Tic Tacs or certs. I'm Michael, and joining us tonight for this episode is an old pal of mine. Welcome, Pete, to the show. Thank you. So basically, Pete, whenever we have a guest on the show, we like to get to know their comic book history and what we like to call their origin story. So um, tell me if you've heard this one before. Started out with Batman 66, (laughs) although I don't know that's what they were calling it back then. But, you know, I had uh, I think you and I have discussed this before. A little um, hand me down black and white, like 10 inch TV in my room. And I can remember watching that same bat time, same bat channel and reruns. So I think that was probably like the first really solid memory I have of like anything really comic them. And, you know, around this point in time, still around 10 years old or so. So I was I was slowly getting into it. You know, I had, you know, some of those Kenner's DC Comics Superpower Collection toys, the Mattel Marvel Secret Wars toys, things like that. I think I still have a few of them kicking around my parents' attic. I got to go dig them out. But where things really start kicking off for me is when a bunch of the animated shows really start popping up. X-Men, which I think we'll, we'll circle back on later, and Batman the Animated Series, and a lot of stuff like that really becomes uh, formative for me in comics and you know where i think things get serious as far as comic comics go is maybe like the 1994 95 sort of area a couple years down the road where i my mom starts working in the town over from us and i start being old enough to take a bus ride over and there's like a little tiny shop in that town that i don't even know that i would call a comic book shop (laughs) it just is like a little tiny like hole in the wall collector place and i think mostly like sports stuff but they had a little spinner rack of comics and they had spider-man cards and i had collected baseball cards and things like that to that point but when i discovered these spider-man cards oh that took over for me (laughs) i was really trying to collect those and i had to go back and look up what they were because i think one of the biggest tragedies of my um, comic book life is that my mom threw a bunch of this stuff out on me oh, a no. while back. I know, yes. <laughs> I feel like I've heard that before too, but it's sad. And I've told Mike this story before that I had like a little trapper keeper, like one of those like Lisa Scott or whatever that was. Yeah, Lisa Frank. Lisa Frank, thank you. Yes, yeah, the, <laughs> like the Marvel Fleer Ultra Spider-Man cards. And those were like my prized possession. I loved those. The art was so gorgeous. I don't know if you guys know that run of cards. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I actually, after I started thinking, 
thinking about it. I popped on eBay the other day and I've got a listing watched right now. I'm going to see <laughs> what the price gets up to because maybe I'll try and reclaim my childhood. But uh, there was that. And then the guys got privy at that place to the fact that I was so into these cars. And that, who knows if I ever even collected the full base set of them or not. But they had given me what was my ultimate prized possession. And it was like, I think even to date, it's worth like $13. But it was a uh, Marvel Universe Series 4 from 93 Spider-Man vs. Venom 3D hologram card. Oh. oh, I loved that card. I had that like locked down in one of those like really cool plastic cases that you would screw shut. Yes, um, I had one of those too. Yeah. I had one of those for a Batman card. Most people yeah. had a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. We had Spider-Man and Venom holograms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know what's funny with the with some of that stuff is I had a like I said a bunch of different like sports cards, and I remember going into third grade and uh, a bunch of the kids in there kind of tricked me out of some like Michael Jordan cards I had because I was really into for whatever reason Nolan Ryan the uh, Texas Rangers pitcher at that time mm-hmm. so I traded a bunch of those and I kind of regret that <laughs> a little bit down the road here too I remember when Nolan Ryan did a series of trading cards with the Looney Tunes I don't know if you ever <laughs> yeah, saw you know, those gosh I don't know if I had those or not I, I would have to really think back if I ever had ones with that but that probably would have been what I've been looking for at that time I don't know why I got such a kick for that but <laughs> yeah i guess the only thing i can say is that my my family was a big big baseball family so i think i was programmed a little bit at that point so when you started getting into buying comics on a regular or semi-regular basis what would you say were the main titles you were picking up yeah so again like i think my big character when i was that age was spider-man and as a kind of a side to that i got really into venom and you know i was chatting with mike uh, early on when you guys were thinking about doing this podcast and he's like you want to be on as a guest and i'm like gosh i don't know if i have anything to contribute and you guys got to that venom episode a couple episodes back and i'm like man i, I would have been a good episode for me because <laughs> i was very very into the spider-man and venom relationship like i loved maximum carnage like i had that game for um genesis and like because i was always doodling um spider-man and venom in my uh notebooks and in, in when i should have been paying attention in class and things like that so those were definitely i think my mainstays but like i said i didn't really have access to like a comic book shop proper so it was really like few and far between. I was actually picking up actual comics. For some reason, I got way, way into the cards. But, you know, allowances as they were at that time, maybe I'd get like $2 or something like that. So it was hard to stretch that to a couple of books at the store sometimes. So, uh, you know, I, I had like a, a mild comic book collection going for a little while. And again, it was mostly kind of surrounding those books. Well, we'll tell you, you know, the Maximum Carnage is still upcoming. So we could definitely have you back on and we'll uh, discuss the game and everything else all the hype surrounding that event yeah no that sounds good yeah i I love that and i think it was just like product of the time you know like like i said i'm talking 94 95 here and that's like when the animated series is in its prime and things like that so yeah i was just very very into those characters and it didn't hurt that i shared a name with peter parker i kind of commiserated on on that with him a little bit i think now how about in your adult years now because i know you know michael's still going to the comic book shop as often as he can well so honestly i have to thank michael for getting me essentially back into comics and i'm not saying that it ever really went away like i said i was kind of like comic book light but i always loved superheroes loved the genre i was always rushing out to see whatever the newest show or movie was and uh, mike and i know each other from college and you know we would go check out the movies and things like that as they came out then but a little bit after school ends for us and actually (laughs) mike would love this that i went and looked this back up that i was able to go find out exactly the date that he was he was getting me back into comics yes because the Mike and I are longtime, for whatever reason, Google chat users. And, you know, that stores a lot of those conversations 
questions in Gmail. So I was actually able to like search for it and found it funny enough this afternoon. So October 2006, he starts texting me, oh, you know, I, I picked up a new graphic, couple of graphic novels. And at that point, I remember he was like really buying up old graphic novels that he hadn't even read at that point. And the funny part of this was that, Mike, I remember you told me that you bought Green Lantern Rebirth and you also bought Infinite Crisis at the same time. And you're like, oh, I never saw these. So I'm going to I'm going to check those out now. So shortly thereafter, he was reading them. And he's like, these are amazing. These are great. You got to check these out among some others. So I went out and I had visited him. And so he had just finished reading it, Green Lantern Rebirth, and he sent me home with it on the train. And I like read it on the train ride home, like pretty much in that one shot. And I think I was like completely rehooked. So from then on, like through that time period after like 2006 to probably like 2011 and 12 was like my complete renaissance for comic book reading. I was way, way back into DC. Green Lantern was like my absolute favorite thing that I was going into. And I had liked Green Lantern before that, but that Jeff John run like completely hooked me back into the world of comics and actually brought me to the point with DC that I'd never been at before because I think I mostly knew like I said the Marvel characters when I was younger so I became more of a DC file when I hit that point so again I have to thank Mike for my rebirth into comics via Green Lantern rebirth nice <laughs> so, yes <laughs> so here's, a, here's a funny little fact for you Adam so once I got Pete suckered back into comics he became I don't want to say obsessed <laughs> but he became fascinated with going as far back as he could and yeah. reading forward. So he was going back to like <laughs> the late seventies, finding books and trying to read from like it was issue. worse than that. No, it was worse. It was worse than the seventies. I was like, I was going back to like the original Alan Scott Green Lanterns. I was going back to the original Hal Jordan runs in like the I think mid sixties. Where were you finding them? A little bit wherever I could, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, you know, I have a couple of other friends who are, are big comic book fans and, you know, like they had a couple different resources for me to try and go back and find some of that stuff. And for some of the stuff that was like way out of print and too hard to find, they, you know, showed me to some other avenues where I could find some old scans and things like that. But I, as Mike said, I just got real itchy to like go back and like, it's weird to try and say that I was going to ever try and be a completionist because I think it's impossible. <laughs> but I was trying to go back and like, you know, catch myself up on some of the reasons why these characters who they were and some of the history of them and um, some of the things like that so I have this weird backwards 90s reading where like for certain titles I was going back into the 90s in like 2010 2011 area and trying to like find this stuff that I had never read as a kid so yeah it got crazy and that's why I say like it kind of went till around like the 2012-ish area where I definitely like burned out hard <laughs> Because, like, he'll, like, as he's saying, like, he's not kidding. Like, I was really trying to read, like, every issue of stuff that was every coming out in certain issue. periods of time there. And I was like, it was crazy. So it, it, it got a little too nuts. <laughs> and then, so when we get to Emerald, Twilight, Parallax, we know who to call. Exactly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I think that's so awesome that you guys could share that. Totally, yeah, and it was really cool period of time. Like, I, I actually, Mike, you'll laugh. I, I dug up even today, like, this uh, great old photo because, you know, he would come in and visit when he had job interviews or things like that he was doing at the time. And so, as he's mentioned before, like, our haunt here in New York City is Midtown Comics. And I don't remember the exact way this started, but for some reason, I was able to figure out that the 
those great little brown paper bags that you bring your comics home in um, somehow fit on my head and made like a perfect hat. Do <laughs> you remember what I'm talking about, Mike? So he came in one we time. We were in your office. Great, we were in yes, your office. I've got this great mind. picture of him where he came and visited me at the office I was working at at the time. And he's in like a full suit because he had gone to an interview. And like, it's like a selfie of us with like these like Midtown Comics bags on our head. It's amazing. <laughs> you got to send those over. We got to well, share yeah. that with everybody. Yes, <laughs> yes. Adam will post them on our Instagram and... And our fans will have more fodder to pick on me for, which, yes. is, which is great. I love it. Speaking of which, cheap plug here, but uh, Pete is also one of the awesome listeners out there who is invested in our official merchandise. That's right. He rocks yes. a, a Wizards t-shirt. And guess what? I am wearing it right now. Yeah. <laughs> I know that this is a, a medium that doesn't support that visual end, but yes, I've got my custom-made Wizards the Podcast Guide to Comics shirt right now, so I, I do highly suggest it. I actually think it's a really nice quality shirt, so it I've been is. pretty happy it's with it. It's very comfortable. It's very comfortable. Well, sure. I was, I was very pleased myself, so I, I can't deny it. All of you out there, go to our Tee Public store, get you a shirt to wear. When you go to the comic book shop, wear your Wizards Podcast Guide to Comics t-shirt. People will want to know you, and they'll want to know about the show. But, you know, you guys were talking about that Google chat earlier. That kind of took the place of the old uh, pen and paper, right? Sending a letter. So I think it's time to open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. <laughs> Dear Wizard, on the cover of Wizard number one, Spider-Man is practically fully clothed in wizard clothes, robes, hat, wand, etc. But in Wizard numbers 9, 10, and 11, Cable, Shaft, Venom, and Spawn are wearing no wizard's clothes at all, just the stars in the background. Please have the artist do a better job of this. Thanks. Jesse Banwell, San Jose, California. <laughs> he really wants that wizard motif. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's what Wizard had to say about that. Okie dokie, here's the lowdown on wizard covers. When we first started commissioning covers for the magazine, we told the artist to stick a hat on the character or whatnot, and they all complied pretty well. But then we began to catch some flack from the comic companies who said that we, quote, misrepresent their characters when we portray them in wizard clothing. Okay, so so as of wizard number eight, the Bishop cover, no more characters were portrayed with hats, robes, etc. Certain creator-owned characters, such as Jim Lee's Wildcats, allow us more freedom. So it's the companies, not the artists, who decide about our wizard embellishment covers. Yeah, kind of interesting there that somebody like was noticing that was their whole gimmick, and I was like, "Can you got rid of it?" Um, <laughs> but it's actually interesting because on Twitter today, Rob Liefeld retweeted a post that we put about his unauthorized cover from issue 10 where it had cable and shaft as it was just mentioned there in that letter and the way wizard portrayed it they said that it was because he was originally commissioned to provide a saber tooth cover and then he decided to change it that he went with cable that he said do cable and shaft and all this stuff but according to rob liefeld he's like never contracted to do a saber tooth cover man those wizard lies never fail to impress i would never do a saber tooth cover <laughs> There you go. A little bit of truth. Pulling back the old wizard curtain there with Rob Liefeld. Now, also, we got a little bit of, uh-oh. Damage control. Damage control. Damage control. 
So Jason Slade from Purvis, Mississippi, Perv might be right here. He wrote into Wizard and he mentions, I know that you guys are not the dating game, but I'm beginning to wonder if there are any single pretty women that collect comic books. So far, I've seen maybe one. Am I just looking in the wrong places? So many times, all the females attending the conventions or the shops just look like they should have scales and appear at a dragon manual. It seems that every girl I date cannot understand why a 19-year-old college student would spend 30 to $40 a month on comic books much less on a single issue. I think I would be the happiest guy in the world to meet a woman who knows what it feels like to complete a collection of uncanny X-Men or finally find that near-mint copy of Amazing Spider-Man number 14. Please print this. You have my permission to even print my address because I begin to wonder if there are any attractive young ladies out there that even read comic books or collect them or anything. Hey girls, prove me wrong. Do you exist or what? I know that there must be hundreds if not thousands of females that read Wizards, so prove it. <laughs> wow yikes yeah a portion of wizard's response to jason here is i've met a couple of really cute girls that collect comics but they were few and far between here's an idea just go out with a girl and maybe introduce her to a couple of comics who knows she might get into them oh man I, i'm sure yeah. that guy's like a prize too you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> The 2020 lens of that whole back and forth is is uh, is problematic for me, but it is what it is, I guess. Ugh. Yeah, well, I so mean, here's my question for you guys, though. Have you ever had a girlfriend in your dating life or a spouse and successfully got them into reading comics or even a comic? Yeah, I mean, you know, like at least on my side, I've gotten my wife to read a few things throughout time. More often than not, I think I can get her easier into like completed graphic novels novels because i think just the single issues and things like that are a little more of a challenge but like i remember i'm trying to remember if it was either like not on our honeymoon but on some trip we took i actually got her to read all of identity crisis um <laughs> which you know like we kind of like sat in bed at night and like would read identity <laughs> crisis which is like super nerdy but like that was a cool thing i was i was feeling pretty good about that <laughs> Fortunately, I have a daughter that seems to like Spider-Man and Batman, and I'm just going to hope for the best that that parlays into her wanting to read it because I've never had anybody in my relationship history, including my own wife, that I can get to sit down and be like, here, read this. I remember my, my wife and I first started dating. I had given her both volumes of Hush, and I was like, please read this, just so you know why I like Batman. She had it in her closet for about the first two years of our relationship and i'm like i'm taking it back because you're never going to read this but it, it is it's fine like funny enough today like grace was like she has these little racing cars they're like captain america and spider-man and the hulk and she goes daddy you be the hulk i'm gonna be spider-man let's race him around the corner and then she has like uh, these like 12 inch batman and spider-man she's like let's team up and rescue people and she's like setting up mickey mouse and batman's rappelling down and spider-man swinging i was like okay fine this three-year-old kid gets it so i'm, I'm good I'll, I'll have someone that will <laughs> read my thousands and thousands of dollars in investment in comics at some point in my life i hope yeah but, you and i are hanging on to that michael and i are both trying to uh, program the next generation here between his girls and my girls. We were trying to get uh, my older Zoe to like make Batman for her first word, but she went with daddy instead, which is fine. But <laughs> we did not get her to get the superhero name for, uh, right off the bar. <laughs> yeah, I, I read comics regularly for my son's bedtime, so I'm trying to get him at least comfortable 
going with the medium, and he's doing a great job now. He's starting to do character voices. He's seven. We read an old Hostess Fruit Pies ad starring the Hulk, <laughs> and he was doing all the voices, even Hulk. I was like, this is great. This kid's got it. Love it. That's awesome. Uh, but That's yeah, but like as far cool. as relationships and comics, I had an ex who literally threw away all my Gen 13 comics out of jealousy, so that didn't go well. What? Yeah, and I was like, oh, okay, this is not going to last. This is a problem. <laughs> this is a problem. <laughs> and my wife is a nerd, but she's not a geek. Like, she loves studying. If she could go back to college, she's already a doctor, but if she could go back to college for the rest of her life and just study this and study that, you know, she wants to read books. <laughs> like, but she, but she has no interest in comic books, so yeah, it's just never quite clicked there. But yeah, for those of you who have found the geek a significant other in your life, and those who at least have a, a feigning interest in your pastime, we salute you. We hope all the best for those seeking love, maybe just in a better way than this Jason guy. Just change the old attitude there. <laughs> the, the only thing I want to really point about about this Jason guy is, so this is 92, Right. He's spending at least forty dollars a month in ninety two in the comic book shop buying books. That's a lot of comics back then. That's a lot of money back then as well. Like I mean, I probably spend forty bucks a month now in twenty twenty, but I, I back then, like that's a lot of books back then. Well I think he, he's probably still paying off that student loan money that he was using to buy <laughs> comics with. I would assume so, yeah. That's about right. <laughs> All right. Well, Michael, we talked a little bit about our past, so I think we're ready to rev up the Wave Riders Wayback Machine. We're diving into November of 1992, and there are some real legitimate blockbusters when it comes to this particular month and year. So first, we have Aladdin, which came out on November 11th, and Aladdin at the time was probably one of the biggest Disney releases ever because you have that Robin Williams singing as the genie. No matter what I do, no, whether it's the Broadway musical or the, the live-action version, it's so hard not to hear Robin Williams' voice singing that character. It was so connected, and everybody knew all those songs instantly. What about you guys? What do you guys feel about Aladdin? Aladdin was my uh, 10th birthday party. I, I went with my best friend and my parents took me at that point. I think it's probably the first for my own birthday party. That was like a first. So I, I remember that one vividly. Well, I mean, it was like the boys princess movie. Finally, you know, it's like yeah. we liked Little Mermaid. We liked Beauty and the Beast. But this was the guy. He's the superhero kid we could enjoy, you know, and he's got a magic carpet. Like I had the cassette tape of the soundtrack. I would crank it on. You know, we've talked about this, Michael, the giant family stereo in the living room. Yes, everyone had the multi-tier stereo. Yeah. <laughs> I would sing along and run around with a rug from our front door and nice. then, like, jump off the couch at the very end, you know, and pretend I was flying on it, that kind of stuff. And it really is probably my favorite Disney animated yeah, film. I totally agree. It, it, to date, it's still my favorite of their, like, 2D animated movies. 
So can I um, give you guys a little fun fact that Adam just jogged my memory on? Yeah. So when you mentioned about the flying carpet around your living room, I recall, and it kind of parlays into another movie that came out this same month. So in my childhood home, we had a carpeted staircase that went down to the front door. And I remember one time I took a beach towel and put it over my feet and I said, I'm going to ride this thing like Aladdin on a magic carpet right down the stairs, <laughs> right onto the hard tile floor with the front door. Yeah. That One was your visit later. <laughs> yes. No, fortunately enough, I was so afraid to tell my parents that I had done such a dumb thing. I didn't tell them. So I just kind of like <laughs> walk around with kind of like a little bit of a limp for a couple days and said, oh, well, it is what it is. I don't know. I fell down. Who knows? But yeah, that was my, my attempt at being Aladdin in, in 92. So there you go. Awesome. So my ne- the next film is another colossal movie that today is even still so relevant. It's such a powerful film. And it was a very long movie at the time. It was like over three hours. Yeah, I remember it was a double VHS set. That's right. It was a double VHS. <laughs> and this is Malcolm X, which came out on November 18th. And I... Obviously, as a kid, I did not see this movie just because of the language and content or whatever. But I remember seeing it as a teenager and you know, even watching it again in college. It, it's a very, very powerful film. And you have to sit there and really take it all in. I think I, the first time I watched it straight through is when I got like the DVD copy of it. So when Pete and I were in college, we were required to take a course that made us read the, the actual Malcolm X book that the film was based on. And it was like a 700-page book. And I'm like, I, I don't know if I can read this whole thing. So I rented the movie, watched the whole movie all the way through. We took a quiz. I did not do well. And then I had to go back and read the book anyway. to read. So I like begged the teacher, goes, did you watch the movie? I was like, how do you know? I could tell you watched the movie and not read the book. So I had to go back and read the whole book anyway afterwards. So for me, like, I'd see this movie again, like you said, we were just kids. It was, it looked very intense. I remember the trailers and I was just like, oh, this is some serious high level stuff I'm not going to understand. But what always stood out to me is that Jim Lee during this period and really for several years after was always wearing a Malcolm X hat, you know, a black hat and it had that X on it. But I don't know if Jim Lee was wearing it because he saw the movie and liked it, or if he was literally like, well, no, I'm the X-Men guy, so I wear this hat. Like, because if you saw, like, on the videos that you would get, and he's being interviewed by Stan Lee or whatever, he's wearing that hat. Or later on, he gets illustrated into some books, you know, as, like, kind of a joke in, in his Wildstorm universe, and they put him in that hat. So I just, I think it's so interesting. Like, to me, that's where the Malcolm X link, the iconography of that X, was always like, oh, and Jim Lee. <laughs> I think where I, I, I started associating this funny enough back to comics was um, Chasing Amy, Kevin Smith's movie. Um, he has that character Hooper X yeah. <laughs> in it. Yeah, and that like I, for some reason that always seemed to cross that barrier into comics there for me for some reason. It's funny. I remember Jim Lee wearing that X hat. Until you say this now, Adam, it, di- it didn't click in my brain that that's what it was correlated to. Or it would be an interesting question to like if you ever m- see him to ask him that question, like what was that hat for? Was mm-hmm. it for X Men or was it for Malcolm X? And I, I'm curious. I'm very curious about that. Now, now 
Now, to be fair, the X-Men metaphor, you know, they say that, you know, Xavier was Martin Luther King and Magneto was maybe more militant Malcolm X. So, you know, maybe there was was a little bit of uh, blending there as well. Yeah, it's a good point. So the next movie was another blockbuster film. It was probably, say, the biggest movie of that month. Home Alone 2, Lost in New York on November 20th. Mac is back. (laughs) (laughs) This movie, I think we actually saw it twice in the theaters. And we'll be honest, it's not as great as the original Home Alone, because the original Home Alone was such a clever, kind of funny idea. But living in New York and being to New York City during the time of the Christmas tree and everything, seeing that as a kid in a, in a movie, be like, oh, this kid's running amok in New York City, and it's no problem, and it's fantastic. It just really captivated me as a kid. I was like, wow, I, I want to be that. I want to do that. And it's just such a fun story. Even though the toy store that he goes to does not exist in real life, but it was, it was a cool story either way. But have you been to FAO Schwartz back in the day then? Many times. And I remember the first time, I think Pete took me there for the first time when when, uh, he first moved into the city. And the piano that Tom Hanks dances on in Big is not nearly as big in real life. And I was really (laughs) bummed by that. Yeah, it wasn't really as impressive as as you were hoping for. A little bit dirty, a little bit used. (laughs) I'm not sure all the keys were working. The last movie that came out in November of 1992 was, again, another massive hit. Like, I don't know who would have possibly dominated the box office with this particular month, but this one is The Bodyguard on November 25th. And this movie, to this day, I still love this film. Everything about it, especially my favorite part of the movie is probably when they're up in the cabin and the guy's hunting them down in the, in the snow and Kevin Costner's like closing his eyes to listen to him run through the snow and he finds him and he shoots him. I have to compare it to, if anything, is like another one of my favorites is a movie starring Clint Eastwood called In the Line of Fire. It's a very similar style movie and I just, I love this movie. I don't know about you guys, but I love The Bodyguard. I've never seen it. I bought it on VHS recently because I was like, I have to unlock the mystery of this film. It is so iconic. It was such a phenomenon in the moment and I I, you know, I obviously remember the poster I mean, him carrying her in the rain and all that kind of stuff. Like, there's just things you know about this movie. But I, but yeah, I just, I, I've never seen it. Again, it was one of those like, this is an adult movie. I don't watch this. I'll go watch Aladdin again. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, what's your thoughts on the Bodyguard? I never ended up seeing this movie, although I feel like I should have. But I have a funny, funny story relating to the bodyguard, um, which is that somewhere around this period of time, like I mentioned, it was around my birthday. So my parents buy me a CD player and I'm like, this is amazing. I'm so excited. But the first CD that my mom buys me to go with this new CD player is the bodyguard soundtrack. (laughs) And I'm not sure if that was a purchase for me. Or a purchase for her. (laughs) And, you know, she played this soundtrack, like, on loop all day, every day for, like, a year on this CD player that she had presumably bought for me. And so I could probably still sing you most of the songs, like, to date, but I somehow never saw the movie. And frankly, I'm not sure if she did. (laughs) It's funny, like, my mother had this soundtrack, too. And in our multi-tier stereo that we had in our living room, she used to play this CD over and over and over again. And I don't know if my mom liked it more or my father, but for some reason, and this is a true story, this is true to this day, 
whenever we would go on like a family vacation, the soundtrack of this particular movie, the main song, I Will Always Love You, whenever we'd play this scene in the, in the car, he would turn the stereo all the way up. <laughs> And my father would scream this song at the top of his lungs as we were driving. It is the funniest See, thing. I was ever. hoping for the version of that story where you like saw his face in the rearview mirror and there's like a single tear rolling down his cheek. <laughs> I could just imagine that. So my wife, like I said, she's not a geek. She doesn't know a lot of pop culture stuff at all and trivia. But this, for some reason, she loves Dolly Parton. And so she's like, Dolly Parton wrote this song and recorded it on one of her albums years before. And so Dolly Parton apparently has this quote where it was like, when I wrote the song, I made enough to buy a car, you know? And then when Whitney Houston recorded the song, I was able to buy a house, you know, or something like that, you know? (laughs) Collect those royalties. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Fun fact about that is she recorded this song I don't even know what the film is called, but it was a film with her and Burt Reynolds. Oh. It was for a movie. Even the first time. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So the music of November of 92 starts off at the top with Whitney Houston's The Bodyguard soundtrack featuring I Will Always Love You, which came out on November 8th, which I find interesting that the soundtrack dropped to purchase before the movie came out. So everybody was already listening to this CD before they even saw the movie in the theaters. So it made the phenomenon around the movie that much bigger. So the next album is one of my favorite albums of all time. And I still listen to this album to date is Rage Against the Machine's self-titled album, their debut album featuring Killing in the Name of, which came out on November 3rd. And so... In high school, I was on the swim team, and before every single meet, we would warm up to this album at full blast in the pool, and we would swim our hardest, like to warm up and go crazy. And we had it was like the like a ritual. And funny enough, because we were warming up so intensely to this CD, we were exhausted by the end of warm ups. <laughs> That we did not win a, a single meet the entire year. <laughs> See, I thought you would have intimidated your opponents with your intense musical choices. They'd be freaked out. They're like, these guys are animals. They'd be too yeah. scared. <laughs> I like that concept of rage swimming. <laughs> I, I, I wish that were the case. Well, so here's here's my fun fact. So, Zach De La Rocha went to my high school. Because I remember going through old yearbooks and be like, oh, there he is. And so... When I formed my garage band in high school, we played Killing in the Name of, you know, in dedication to him. And I, but we always had to cut it off, you know, <laughs> before the end of it, you know, F you, I won't do what you tell me. And I was like, why don't we just change it to forget you? I won't do what you tell me. We could have done the whole song, but back then we're like, we just cut it off. And we did like the radio edit, you know, dun, 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 dun. Then it was over. This comes from a fella who, uh, he went to this school a couple years ago. A man named Zach De La Rocha and his band, Rage Against the Machine. This one's called Killing in the Name of...
they told you. And now you do what they told you. And now you do what they told you. And now you do what they told you. Those who die are justified. But where are the fans? Give it to the white. Justified. Those who die. It's actually kind of funny. So we're on the day that we're recording this, they were supposed to have a tour this year. I was supposed to be at this concert tonight to see them oh. at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, it was literally on the day it was supposed to happen was today. I bought tickets for my cousin and I, and then everything got, you know, the, the world went, you know, south because of the the coronavirus and i had to cancel the tickets i got a full refund but i was for the first time in my life supposed to see them tonight right now at the concert which is weird so that's our wave riders way back machine for november of 1992 so adam what do we got in our table of contents all right so if we uh take a look at the retrospective in wizard issue 50 according to pat mccallum it's a shame that this issue in my opinion was our worst wizard to date this was right before the 1992 san diego comic-con which the entire staff was headed off to with our normally last minute deadlines pushed up by about a week the office was in chaos the end result a sloppy issue of wizard with the icing being that we re-ran the page numbers from last issue's table of contents meaning that wizard number 15's table of contents the roadmap of the issue was completely wrong (laughs) so he considers this to be the worst time will tell as we go through it but what we have if you want to also mention maybe a a not too fortuitous choice of cover is wetworks yes wetworks was is the new book by Will Sportacio. He was finally coming to Image. He's releasing this amazing book everybody's anticipating. But what Pat McCallum also mentions is that Will Sportacio returned to do our first ever Gatefold cover. For those who don't know, he did the Bishop cover that we mentioned in issue 8. He was originally scheduled for a single panel cover featuring his new Image team Wetworks, but the sketchy facts over just didn't seem to work as a cover. Accompanying his facts were four other pages, each featuring sketches of several members of the team, just to give us a better idea of his as-yet-unpublished characters. When Garib saw those sketches, he called up Wills, asked if we could link all four sketches, and if we could use them as a cover. He said yes, and bam, we had a cover. So there's always a story, you know, behind the scenes there. Pete, does Wetworks ring a bell for you at all? A little bit. Uh, You know, I think I've come across those characters in passing. I don't think it was a a book I ever necessarily picked up and read. I, I will admit, other than... I do recognize this cover prior to us talking about it. I, I couldn't pick these guys out of a lineup as to being them being wetworks. I have no idea. And that never knew about this story until we started talking about this. And I will honestly admit that no clue. So just putting that out there in the universe. Yeah, and I mean, for me, I literally only knew Wetworks, never from comics, never saw them in the comic shop. It was always about the McFarlane toys that I saw on the the pegs back in the day, and I was like, who are these buff gold dudes with huge guns? But that was like the only thing I knew about Wetworks. I 
got to tell you the one thing I really appreciate about this, and I forget if I mentioned it earlier, you know, like I have actually up to this point never read an issue of Wizard. So I'm, I mean, know oh, it's like blasphemy on this uh-huh. podcast. I know, but I've been so appreciating it, obviously, through you guys. But, uh, you know, they've got a little bit of a, uh, a risque side to them here with this getting wet splattered right across the, uh, the two yeah. spread of this. That is the title <laughs> of the interview. And it's uh, and Will Spertacio's got his picture there. He's got the sunglasses on and he's just looking all <laughs> suave. Yeah. So they definitely were pushing the envelope with that. So Will Spertacio is interviewed about Wetworks being released in October 1992. That's the big hype. They've promoted it for two different types of ads in the last two issues, but the book wouldn't actually be officially published until June 1994 because of delays brought on by the tragic death of Portesio's sister. But at this time, nobody knew that. As far as they knew, it was on schedule. Uh, although, I have to ask, if they're promoting it here, and it's supposed to be coming out, they didn't know, like, even a month in advance? They were they're on that tight a deadline where the book was not ready? Like, that's kind of crazy, I feel like. like. Shouldn't they at least put out the first issue? I wonder if they delayed it because they're like we don't know when issue two would even be able to be finished but nowadays when it comes to writing comics a lot of the writers they write the entire story before even a single panel is drawn so it's six or twelve issue arc it's already written and then they just give it to the artist to do isn't he also doing the art for this on top of writing it well he was writing it with brandon Choi, jim lee's writing partner so yeah so i mean he had a collaborator in the whole process who he mentions yeah. you know in this on that note though they actually did have all the plotting done because in this issue that you know they, they go through the first issue but then it's solicited what works number two is in the next issue at issue 16 they have a, a plot summary for that so they definitely had it planned out but it just seems to be like this was the era where a number one issue is what mattered that's where you made all your money it was young blood number one it was spawn number one it was wildcats number one what works number one just put it out there you're gonna make your money but to Michael's point, probably maybe they said, well, if you can't do a continuing series, we'll just wait. They just probably didn't know they were going to be waiting two years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they do interview him about, okay, well, what's the book about? What's it going to be? It's basically this group of special ops guys. Then they get these symbiotes that cover them in this gold armor and it enhances their bodies and heals them and all that kind of stuff. But what was an interesting point he brought up was that he has to write characters that are based on people he knows because it's more realistic for him that way. And he can figure out this is how somebody would speak. This is how they would react because I know that person. For example, he says there's a character named Pilgrim in there who is a a female operative, and she's based on his cousin, who's a police officer. He's also, outside of just Wetworks, he's asked about his project, apparently, that was teased at some point with Chris Claremont coming to Image, called The Huntsman, which also, he mentions, has been postponed just because they couldn't get their schedules to sync up. But The Huntsman eventually also debuts in 1994 as part of a two-issue arc in Wildcats number 10 and then 11 so I, I found that was interesting as well just from the statement of okay well these things are going to happen eventually but 1994 is Will's Portacio's real coming out party for Image finally Will said your wife might have something in common here Michael because he says that he admits that since he started working in comics he hasn't had time to read comics and he mentions that somebody gave him a copy of Watchmen 8 years ago when he broke into the industry 
and he still hasn't finished it. <laughs> really? Yeah. Interesting. Just no time. But in the letter from our publisher, Garab Sheamus is posing with four spokes models. Obviously, at some sort of comic convention, there's like a woman dressed as voodoo from Wildcats and some other scantily clad ladies. But also in the mix, he says, if you hadn't noticed from the above picture, Wizard has a new spokeswoman named Crystal. You better come visit us or she'll she'll put a spell on you. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Crystal, as in Crystal Ball, obviously, had to fit the the wizard motif i feel bad for poof poof the wizard for 14 issues was their mascot he's still appearing in the pics for the wizard's hat banner i believe but they're just throwing him out to the wind for a sexy babe yeah i guess poof wasn't getting the love from the uh, publishers <laughs> <laughs> jason slade certainly didn't want poof he wanted more crystal so <laughs> we'll see we'll see what kind of uh, appearances she makes in future issues but also in here there's an interview with a guy named michael jan friedman who is is writing a title for DC called Dark Stars, which is described as like a grim and gritty Green Lantern core. So you guys are Green Lantern fans. Michael, Pete, Dark Stars? <laughs> Anybody? Yeah, you know, again, this is one of these ones that unfortunately is a little bit before the time that I'm like heavy into it. And even when I'm going back to start learning about Kyle Rayner and some of the really big 90s characters, I, I think I've, you know, heard of this group in passing. But I, I think in the period of time where I'm like big on Green Lantern, it seems to not be coexisting at least so much at that point. So here's a little interesting tidbit about this i did not know this existed in the 90s but grant morrison is doing a run on green lantern right now and he is bringing back this dark stars story arc and characters in the current run of green lantern written by grant morrison it's very grant morrison so like be prepared to be very off the wall and out there but it's an interesting read i've only read a couple of the issues but the first volume just came out in trade as well and it's like six or so issues and it's pretty cool like it's very new look at hal jordan new look at the star sapphires and everybody's tweaked a little bit so it's interesting oh okay yeah because i i had never heard of him before so that's good that it's getting some love nowadays but this guy michael jan friedman they say that this is his first superhero comic book that he's done but he's a prolific writer and he actually had previously written the star trek the next generation comic at dc and in the star trek universe he's finishing up a novelization called the god thing that is based on gene rodberry's original draft for star trek the motion picture so hmm. for all you star trek fans you probably already knew that but here's a guy he was also writing comics and he stays in the cosmos apparently because his next project is revamping a forgotten 50 superhero called space ranger but you know who cares <laughs> nobody cares i mean this this is a kind of an interview where you're like yeah here's a guy here's a guy who does some stuff he puts some words on paper <laughs> yeah and again especially through that prism of time it's just like yeah i guess these things didn't ever blow up in the way that <laughs> they might have been expecting or hoping here now i will say the one thing that wizard does to try to compensate is that there's an awesome like splash page two-page spread in the middle of his interview which obviously there wasn't much of an interview because there's a huge picture of hal jordan green lantern even though the only mention of green lantern is 
Dark Stars is kind of like Green Lantern. <laughs> and so, like, there's there's a, the DC Cosmic Cards Green Lantern, and then Hal Jordan is bursting out of it through the middle of the page. And I love the layout, but I'm just like, that is not really speaking to what this article is about in any way. He's not writing a new Green Lantern book. He's writing the Green Lantern imitation book. Yeah, you have to imagine their editorial offices talking to each other like, all right, we've got this interview, but we have no art. What do you mean we have no art? We've got no art from this yet. (laughs) Green Lantern in there, he mentions him in passing. Right. So also, they're continuing their video game coverage. So in addition to 16-bit power, which again is covering video games that have nothing to do with comic books, they've added this new guy to the mix, and his name is Glenn Rubenstein, and he is their premier video game columnist, but he's only 16 years old, right? So in his bio, he claims to have been in the video game industry for, quote, two years. <laughs> I'm like, you've been in the video game industry since you were 14? <laughs> he's like, from advertising to game programming? I'm like, what What are you talking about? Like, this kid just BS'd his way into a writing career. I mean, I don't understand. He's like, yeah, I, uh, I sold a video game to a friend once. I showed him the box. Advertising. <laughs> but yeah, he also says he wrote for the San Francisco Examiner newspaper and Sports Illustrated for Kids, which I actually have an issue of Sports Illustrated for Kids in front of me here, but it's from 1997, so I doubt he was still writing for them then. And he goes on to actually do some big things of the same, big, you know, in quotations, but he was a regular on a syndicated radio show called On Computers. It was hosted by this guy, Leo Laporte, and we've talked about this. I listened to a lot of talk radio back in the day, and so I totally listened to that show, so I probably heard this kid on there. But the nice thing is he's relating video games to comics in this article, so he at least has an understanding of, you know, okay, here's my audience, let me write to them. But in the ad space across from this article, right next to it, is an ad for Spider-Man and the X-Men in Arcade's Revenge for the Super NES and the Sega Genesis. So this is one of the few Super NES games I actually had in my library. I had, like, Star Fox, and I had this game, and I think I had, like, one more, and then I kind of gave up on video games at that point. But I'm curious, did you guys ever play this, Spider-Man or the X-Men? This one's a tough call for me, because, uh, like Michael, I was definitely a Genesis kid at this point. You know, Sega does what Nintendo don't, right? (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, I went over to a ton of, like, friends' houses. That was always the trade-off, is that they could come over and play my stuff on the Genesis. I could go over and play their stuff on the SNES. So I probably crossed paths with this at some point, but I can't remember for sure. But what a random pull as far as the villain to go with somebody like Arcade. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely, it's like, well, he creates all these death traps, so I guess it makes sense. You can create a level based on every trap, but I just had a hard time with this game. I never got past, like, the first level, and the way it worked is, like, you started out playing Spider-Man, and then, like, I think you got to add characters as the levels went on. You could play, you know, the X-Men, but I never got really to play the X-Men, and so I got frustrated with this game and hardly played it. It came with a poster, and I put the poster up on my wall, but that was a very expensive purchase for a poster. <laughs> I think we all did I, a few of those. <laughs> I think I, a friend of mine who had an SNES, I, I played it at his house a couple times, but again, I never got past you know the first level or two and just a Spider-Man, and I was like, I, I can't justify begging my mom to let me buy you know, a, a Super Nintendo just for this game that I'll never beat anyway, so why, why bother? I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the 16-year-old kid, though, because nowadays, like you, a, a kid 
kid could be 16 years old and making money from a game company by making YouTube videos on how to do cheats and stuff like that. Right. But in 92, that didn't exist. Maybe he wrote a newsletter that he submitted to like Nintendo Power and said, hey, I figured out the cheat codes in this game. I don't know. That's about it. It seems like his angle was, hey, video games are hot. Do you have a video game column in your newspaper or magazine? I'll write it. And they probably all these old publishers are like, oh, yeah, that's that's a great idea. The kids, yeah, the kids will start picking up our, our magazine and whatever if you got video games in there. I mean, what's interesting, though, is he goes on to a fairly successful career. I mean, it, again, staying in the electronics and gaming industry, he actually one of like the founding contributing editor writers at Wired magazine. And he goes on to do a lot of other stuff like on YouTube, like CNET, you know, and just all these places people go for their tech info. So, I mean, he, he definitely continued on. Yeah, I couldn't help but look him up, too. And actually, I see that he does a ton with podcasting now. And apparently, kind of relating back to what you were saying with the advertising to his friends with games, like, it looks like he's doing a lot of, like, stuff now with, like, big advertising stuff with podcasts. So uh, he just got his way in there and he kept on pushing up the ladder. So good for him. (laughs) Yeah, thumbs up, Glenn. But another guy who keeps pushing and pushing, uh, maybe it's Star Trek, maybe it's something else, that is William Shatner. Yes, it's being announced that he has partnered with Marvel to release his Tech War and Tech Lords novels as a comic book called Tech World. Now, I will admit, my only connection to Tech War or any of this is that Simpsons quote at one point where Principal Skinner (laughs) is being approached when Mrs. Krabappel says, the only books we have in our library are the books that were banned by other schools. Well, the children had to learn about Tech War somehow. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I ever knew. And I actually have a pack of William Shatner's Tech World trading cards in front of me that I randomly got at one point. But other than that, like I did not pick up this book. But Pete, from what I understand, you are a fan of old Bill Shatner. So what can you tell us about him and his tech adventures? Uh, Yes, so Mike can attest, I'm definitely a sci-fi guy. I was definitely a um, Star Trek and Star Wars kid growing up, which is odd because I feel like usually you have to kind of pick your camp and live in it. Um, But no, I was definitely a Shatner fan. You know, I've I've seen him in person on some of his weird little things, you know, and this guy is one of these guys that's like a um, a Chuck Norris <laughs> type of personality for me, where like everybody's kind of put this mythical kind of personality onto him. But this went completely past me, certainly at this point in time, you know, way back when. And I think I heard passing about it in, in some of my later years. So I, actually in prep for this comic, I went and dug some of them up and like read the first like five issues of Tech World. And frankly, it's not too bad. Like I didn't know what to expect from it. I was worried because, you know, even the books that he's basing these first issues off of if you go and kind of look up reviews about them it's very hit or miss people either love them and if they love them it's because they're like considering it to be the equivalent of like a popcorn movie or something like that they're like check your brain at the door this is just like you no know, <laughs> am- amalgam of his characters but yeah you know it's it's not bad i wouldn't necessarily suggest for anybody to go run out and and dig these up <laughs> unless you've got something specifically for um william shatner because again i think most of these are completely ghost written he's you know giving some ideas and some rough outlines and he's got a guy that he was working with that he was a fan of I'm blanking on his name now who is primarily doing most of the writing for the books yeah Ron Goulart 
Thank you. Yeah, they're a little funky. Kind of reminds me. I don't know. It's like a weird mix-up of like genres of things that don't even necessarily exist yet. So like, I kind of when I'm reading it feel like it's a mix almost between like Altered Carbon meets Ready Player One. If that makes any sense, <laughs> like it's kind of got like this like gritty cop who's like on ice for a crime he didn't commit, and they unfreeze him to become a private detective because reasons, and he's got to go do stuff, and you know he meets all these people, and I don't know. It's it's like a roughly kind of drawn book it's kind of very definitely in like that 90s pre where they really start putting a lot of effort into the art so it's kind of like half there half not and you know over the course of the five issues i was looking at he's like getting attacked at random and he fights the guy off and and then he just moves on to the next thing and they don't really explain what's going on so much so it's, it's a little weird it definitely feels very shatner <laughs> well this is what shatner says it says according to the actor director author the comic book will adapt the novels and incorporate new material as well i thought I made a mistake, actually. I was in the middle of shooting Star Trek, and a series of strikes hit the industry, and I was idled for six months. I was doodling around with the story. I put the TJ Hooker-type character in the same milieu as Star Trek. Once I got caught in that sequence, I couldn't get out of it. I realized, though, that I had made it too close to home for me. I sought to correct that in the comics. I was like, huh? But I don't know why, because it says he describes his character Jake Cardigan as a policeman in the future, about 200 years from now in the novel, chasing the drug lords of the future who sell tech, a technical drug not unlike today's television, which allows you to achieve your emotional needs, Shatner explains. Therefore, if, as in Jake Cardigan's case, you're divorced and you've lost your child and you fervently wish to have your wife and child back by taking tech, you can imagine them being there. He says that's too close to home? This is a tragic (laughs) life for Bill Shatner. Yeah, first, I love that little dig at television, too, that he's saying that current (laughs) television is like this drug. The funny thing about it is the tech has not a lot to even do with anything. I mean, essentially when they're talking tech and a drug and all this sort of thing, it's essentially like an augmented reality. It's not even like a drug like you're thinking like you'd pop a pill or something. You put like a headset on your head and you think about what would make you happy. And so like in this case, his wife who had left him with it, with his kid and took off, he can like see them and, and you know, like it's weird because he's like, he's picturing his kid at nine. He's like, oh, you don't look right. So then the next thing the kid looks like 14 because it's five years later. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very bizarre. Are. And then, like, the whole thing kicks off into this... Um storyline where he's having to try and track down this man and this um, and his daughter who are trying to come up with this thing that's anti-tech where if they fire off some pulse that it'll destroy all the tech around the world like the tech cartels don't want that to happen and it's it's very bizarre because you don't really even see people using tech it's, it's weird <laughs> so, so what you guys are saying because this is all new to me what you're saying is William Shatner invented social media and AI and AR and VR technology with this book <laughs> that's what it sounds like he invented facebook and the idea of like oh this is the life that i want to live i want to follow these people and i want to imagine myself with them i'm gonna put on this vr headset he just basically invented it in this comic book who knows all by mashing up tj hooker and star trek according to him yeah and in fairness <laughs> this is definitely more tj hooker than star trek <laughs> Well, now that we've talked about TV actors moving into comics, let's get ready to explore some comics jumping to the movie screens with Heroes in Motion. So we have a very fun 
little factoid. I don't know if a lot of you guys know this, but before the Black Panther film that came out a few years ago, Wesley Snipes was trying very, very hard to make a Black Panther film, which would have been directed by John Singleton. And it was scheduled to begin filming in January of 92, yet another project that never comes to be. And I remember this. There was a lot of talk about this movie because there was a picture of him sitting on a tank, like posing for like promo shots as T'Challa and wanting to do this Black Panther film really, really desperately. And it just didn't ever amount to anything. But it's interesting because, you know, when the movie finally did get made, he talked about... You know, a lot of the details about how he was having a hard time getting people to understand what it was because so many even the filmmakers he was trying to bring on board wanted to make it about the 60s Black Panther party they were not understanding no no he's like I want to show Africa as this advanced nation in this beautiful place but you know it, it was going to be a, you know, a kind of simple production and he's like yeah it's probably better that it didn't get made and eventually I learned from that and was able to make Blade and that became a huge thing for me so it was all good but yeah it's just interesting at this time we thought we were going to get a black panther movie yeah which would have been really interesting i'm a big wesley snipes fan i love that guy so the next thing which is one i did not know about which i find very interesting is there are rumors circulating that eddie murphy was to star in a green hornet film he ended up moving on to do some other projects and i could actually see eddie murphy as green hornet i could see that and that would work for me. That would be pretty cool. I used to watch the 60s show, and then I saw the Seth Rogen film, and I was a little disappointed by it because I thought it could have been so much more. And I have the entire run of Green Hornet that Alex Ross was drawing the covers for about five or six years ago, and I could see this. I think Eddie Murphy would, would have been a cool Green Hornet. That would have been an interesting take on that. Now, the next thing is Warren Beatty reportedly requested a meeting with Tim Burton to discuss playing the Riddler in a third Batman film according to the New York Daily News but Burton hadn't yet committed to the film there was no script and Batman Returns failed to meet expectations so this is most likely just a rumor but it is an interesting rumor because we had already talked about in a previous episode and we did an entire episode on the Dick Tracy film that they had hoped to start a franchise with that failed I could never imagine Warren Beatty as the Riddler, though. There's so many other actors that I thought would actually be funny that could play the Riddler or more evil and, and psychotic in a way. Well, I mean, sadly, we still got terrible casting in Batman Forever with Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face. So either yeah. way, like, if it was Warren Beatty as the Riddler and then we actually got Billy D. Williams as Two-Face, it sounds like it wouldn't have worked either way. Yeah. <laughs> there would have been that bad casting choice. So next is Batman Returns. The VHS release came sooner than expected due to poor box office performance and low merchandise sales. Because I don't know if you guys know this. I mean, the three of us know, but people who might be listening, you didn't get the movie 
on digital or DVD a month after it left theaters like you do today. You had to wait months and months. I remember for like the original Batman 89, which came out in June, I got that VHS as a Christmas present that year because it took until December for even to drop on VHS because it took about six months usually. Yeah, for no, turnaround. six months used to be the number back then. And when you think about the fact, too, that they had to like manually record these things because it's tape, it's not just stamping a disc. It had to take a big period of time to actually produce them usually. Well, what's surprising to me is that Batman Returns was considered not the success they wanted. Like, I know they there was a lot of controversy because of the content that Tim Burton put into it. Like McDonald's, there was the big thing, how can you promote this film that has so much sex and violence and all this stuff? But to us, this movie was such a big deal for kids our age, I don't think we ever would have considered oh, this was a movie that didn't do well. Yeah, this is another one I remember seeing in the theater with a friend for a birthday party, you know, so like, as far as I knew, people were seeing it. Other than the, the Penguin being not Burgess Meredith, let's put it that way, this movie to me was actually a little bit less scary than Batman 89 because I remember being seven years old and seeing the Joker when he peels off the thing and, and you see the green fingernails. That's a little scary for a kid. And then later on when the girl that has like his live-in girlfriend that he alters her face and she pulls off the mask and her face is all like burned with acid. That was terrifying. And I used to close my eyes at that scene for a long, long time. But in Batman Returns, I can't think of a scary moment other than the, ver- <laughs> the very, the very, very end. I remember in the theater being so scared when Christopher Walken's character gets like electrocuted and like yes. burned and all oh, that that did it bad for me at that point for me it was when the penguin bites that guy's nose and the blood squirts <laughs> out and you're like ah oh. but those are probably the two scariest moments was yeah I mean even in 89 though Joker electrocutes a guy and he does the kind of the same exact thing where he burns his whole body up but that it was, was with a joy kid. buzzer Michael that's funny that's hilarious <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're dead <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. I, I used to oh i love that movie i want to watch that this weekend i think if i can so i've got a next... little side note for you for batman returns so uh, this is in relation to a few past episodes that you guys have have had on here mike was mentioning that it had been his birthday and you asked him what he got for his birthday and he had kind of like a ho-hum answer for you that was like oh you know i didn't get much whatever and then you guys have been talking so so much about the batman returns figures so i'm sending michael something because he knows that he got something for his birthday but he doesn't know what it is yet and he can see right now what he got for his birthday whoa holy stromboli all right so a little backstory like i said mike and i've been friends for a good 20 plus years at this point and i know he's mr big batman and i know particularly he's mr keaton batman so you want to mention uh, <laughs> what you got in your, your message there so adam this works perfectly because pete got me the figure that is michael <laughs> keaton where you can put the batman suit on him yeah i had both this figure and the catwoman figure that adam had gotten me for my birthday came a little bit early which was fantastic so now i will have both of them on display <laughs> which is like utterly fantastic now i need to track down all of them so thanks <laughs> yeah, guys. yeah. No, really we haven't started you down a bad road i actually have to you, thank adam for part of this idea for this because i was really scouring around trying to think of what i could and then you guys had mentioned that catwoman figure and i'm like oh i can add to that and i knew that he loved this bruce wayne so much that i was like oh i gotta go for this one <laughs> wow that's fantastic I, I can't wait to get this pete thank you i'm, I'm, I'm pumped. Welcome. they're both gonna 
going to be <laughs> on display. So the next thing we have here, Howard Stern is developing The Adventures of Fartman to start <laughs> filming in 1993. Do you guys remember this when he was on the MTV Video Music Awards as Fartman? I do Big remember this. Yeah. I think they recreated it in Private Parts in his movie. I think I, that's I think actually I probably when I remember it from is from Private Parts. Yeah, you're probably right. I think that's where I'm digging it up from too. The king of all media. He wanted to get another movie going. I I, I guess this is the question. Is this this is probably before Private Parts? Now that I'm yeah, thinking yeah, about pri- it, Private Parts came out in the late '90s, like probably like '97 or so. Yeah, and that was that like a critical theater. like success. Like everybody's yeah. like, wow. Howard Stern gave us a great movie. So if he had done this first (laughs) and actually gotten it done, maybe he should be grateful it didn't happen. Yeah, seriously. So now we're going to dive into a show that was highly, highly anticipated. X-Men The Animated Series. The show was originally set to premiere on September 6th, but was pushed back to October. At this point, they're planning three seasons. It's revealed that it is the same creative team that produced Pride of the X-Men from the late 80s, which didn't go to series. The showrunner admits that he wanted to use the classic Uncanny X-Men team, but decided that the best thing to do was X-Men characters that the consumers wanted, the current team. So let me ask you guys, what were some of your favorite episodes, characters, or moments in this show? Pete, as our guest, I'll let you go first. What are your thoughts on X-Men, the animated series, some of your favorite characters and moments and such? Yeah, this show is so formative for me. I can remember at the period of time that this was airing that like me and my friends were always like out on the playground like, I'm Wolverine. No, I'm Wolverine. All right, you can be Cyclops. Oh, I don't want to be Cyclops. You know, like what it, it was so, so part of like exactly that period of time that we were kids that like it was just so great and amazing. And now the great part is with it being on Disney Plus, I'm like now showing it to my seven year old and kind of like reliving it yet over again. But, you know, at the same time, it's like this and Batman the Animated Series came out and both of them just took the content so seriously. Like they weren't making it just like another goofy kids show, you know, something silly. They were really doing something that felt to me, at least at that time and still to date, different. And I I just loved the show. I still love this show. And frankly, like I said, because I was lacking a little bit in comic book department, this stuff is what was completely informing me about so many characters. Like, this is where I came to meet so many of these characters for the first time. And favorite episodes? God, all of them. You know, like, uh, yeah, I, I love the um, Days of Future Past episodes. I love the stuff with Cable hunting down Apocalypse. There's just so, so many good polls that it's hard to even I think um, narrow it down <laughs> past that. I'm curious, I, I don't want to interrupt before Adam um, mentions it, but did you two ever get to see the Pride of the X-Men pilot? Oh yeah, I, I've got it on tape here, but I used to watch it on TV all the time because they would replay it as part of the Marvel Action Hour or whatever. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. yeah I, that was actually kind of cool too. I mean, the one funny thing I think about that is they almost front-loaded it too much. Like, they kind of put like too much content in it, and I know it goes on to become like the arcade game which i love to death that x-men arcade game (laughs) even if you were like playing dazzler i always like playing nightcrawler in that but that was really cool if not a little bit more anime-ish 
Well, that's what I always say is I feel like the animation, that Sunbow Marvel, you know, animation style from the 80s, I much prefer it to the 90s, you know, what they did with X-Men and with Spider-Man. Because, like, the storytelling was good, but the animation to me was terrible. And the character designs and everything just looked so shiny and goofy. Like, I, I, I don't like the character designs, but I, I think the quality of the way that they told the stories was excellent. Because, like you were saying, if you didn't have comic book knowledge... They were literally lifting episodes direct from the comics, and they would say, like, based on stories by Chris Claremont. You'd be like, wow, if they're putting in the credits, they're taking it seriously. Yeah, definitely. Again, it's like one of these ones where I think they went so deep on what the stories were that they were telling that, like, actually, the funny part was when I went to go start showing this to my daughter, I was like, oh, I need to think about if there's any of this that might be, like, too much content for her, you know, like, that if it's not even age-appropriate for her at that point yet, because because they have such deep pulls on like how the mutants are being treated and, mm-hmm. and different things like that. It's just unlike anything that I had seen up to that point. The Phoenix Saga, though they did the Dark Phoenix Saga, like they would do like these four or five episode arcs at a time and occasionally you'd get a standalone. But like I, it, was, it was also kind of melodramatic for me. <laughs> I just remember, like, Cyclops, for example, uh, in the Dark Phoenix saga, the line that has stuck with me ever since I was a kid was, Gene, I know you can fight it! Use the power <laughs> of your mind! And I was just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> It's, it's so over the top. And for me, like, Rogue was probably my favorite X-Men character at the time. I just thought she was so interesting. The idea that she came from being a villain and being raised essentially by Mystique, and then she turns over to Xavier's side. But then also, where'd she get her powers? She got them by absorbing them from Miss Marvel. And there was there's an episode called A Rogue's Tale, where it's just a one-and-done episode. That's actually my favorite episode. Is that yeah, one? mine too. It's, it's fantastic. It's a great episode and i because I, I, i'm a huge carol danvers uh captain marvel miss marvel fan she's up there as my my top five marvel characters and that episode when she was in it's like oh this is fantastic but there are parts that are very melodramatic i will agree <laughs> and truth be told if you compare the art back in this time you guys don't realize we had a renaissance of animated series back then we had this we had spider-man we had batman there was so many shows that were iron man fantastic four yeah man there was a ton at that point there was a ton if you had to like base them on a scale of you know the top 10 or whatever batman the animated series bar none everyone will say is the best of all time i I think batman the animated series takes the top three slots and then everybody else (laughs) that's fair (laughs) right so I, I would say if you had to compare this to Spider-Man, the animated series, I think the art in Spider-Man was far superior to this. I just thought that the thing about this show was you had so many different characters that you could follow and root for that, to me, gave me a little bit more of something to tune into more often, even though I did watch both of them religiously, I think I just liked the X-Men more because when you think about X-Men in any time period in any time of the world they are meant to be the misfits the outcasts the the people that are persecuted or whatever and being a nerdy kid and you can connect with them like okay they're misunderstood but they're still they're good people they're heroes and that to me was important so i yeah you know like what adam was saying like i've always had a quote that stuck with me throughout time from the show and i don't know why it ingrained itself in my head so much but i think it's jubilee and maybe trask and she's like what did we ever do to you and he's like you were born you know and it's just like that's like that's deep for a kid's show you know that's crazy 
crazy. <laughs> well, it, this show was so big, like at Pizza Hut, right? You could get the videos along with like a collector's cup and a personal pan pizza and a little mini comic. Like they did a lot of promotion. And then like I have the Pizza Hut videos. I have also the releases that they started putting out in stores and advertising in comics on VHS. So like it was a big enough deal that they're like, people want to buy this. People want to have it in any form they can get it. But also they jam-packed this show with cameos from the X-Men universe. Like, how many new characters ripped directly from the page would you see in every episode? Like, I was just watching one today where it was Iceman was returning. He was a rebellious former member of the X-Men and he's coming back and they're, like, stopping a plan of his. And then all of a sudden, the whole 90s X-Factor team is there. There's Havoc and there's Strong Guy. And I was just like, whoa! You know, like, they, they just all of a sudden put everybody there and they there was, like, a brief fight and a misunderstanding that it was over. And at that point, Havoc and Cyclops don't know their brothers? And I was like, huh? Like, so they're, they're, <laughs> they're just, like, planting these seeds. It was the same. I was watching an, uh, an episode about Mojo World. You know, they have Longshot yep. <laughs> in there. And for some reason, like, they use a character model of Dazzler as, like, a backstage groupie <laughs> with Longshot. And then in season three, I was watching one of the Dark Phoenix episodes, and Dazzler is actually in that episode as a character so i was like but they just they already showed her way back here you know so it was just it was really strange how they just like had like so many characters that if you were paying attention you'd be like oh and it wasn't quite as much like spider-man did a lot more of bringing in like characters from other shows like iron man was on there they crossed over with the x-men yeah <laughs> x-men didn't do that as much but i did find an episode in season five where it's a flashback of wolverine and captain america fighting nazis and i was like what like this is pretty wild like so they, they did go out and do it every once in a while and that always was special so that's heroes in motion for november of 1992 so adam what do we want to dive into next oh i think we want to fire up asriel's action figure fury So we were talking about Batman Returns toys earlier. Michael, you said you're going to go try to find all of them now. Well, one of the ones that you might have a hard time finding, according to Brian Cunningham, he is stating that the stores are reportedly pulling the Penguin Commandos action figures off the shelves because little kids are swallowing the tiny parts. And he also mentions, he's like, why are these toys even on the shelves to begin with? <laughs> Who wants a penguin toy? Not the penguin, like a literal two of penguins with missile backpacks. I remember seeing them in Toys R Us as a kid, and I was like, who would ever buy these? Like, why would I need these for? <laughs> I was so into Ninja Turtles, and I can remember after a point, all the Ninja Turtles would be off the shelf, but there'd be like a thousand foot clan <laughs> people left over. These are those ones where they make them, and I'm not sure who they're making them for. Yeah, I mean, nowadays you could build your penguin army, because I don't believe they ever got recalled officially. This sounds like another rumor, just like that Max Shrek figure he was telling us existed but you couldn't find last episode i mean because uh, you go on ebay now they're like six seven dollars like it's not a big deal to find these penguins but speaking of the packaging seeing them on the shelves there's a guy who wrote in named gerald who said he recently bought a kenner police academy action figure but it was packaged in a bill and ted's excellent adventure action figure card back and i was like huh and brian he talks about it like he knows he 
he's like, simply put, they goofed. A weird mistake when you think about it, eh? But I was just like, well, who has that? Like, I went looking around online and was like, you know, did Gerald do a blog post about this years later? Because I want this now. I don't know if you guys have probably seen this on Twitter. There's people that post pictures where they find a Spider-Man in a, in a Batman bubble or something. Like, people do that as a joke. They switch out characters and things. But as an actual factory error, it sounds like, that you're just not going to come across two obscure action figure lines. Yeah, my question is, was he trying to buy the Police Academy figure or the Bill and Ted figure? (laughs) That's an excellent question. You're a great detective, Pete. (laughs) I didn't even know there were Bill and Ted action figures back then. That's funny. I I actually had a couple Police Academy figures. I I had Mahoney. I had... Did you have Zed on the skateboard? With his shorts fell down and he had the hearts boxer shorts on underneath. Yes, I I did have that. That was my favorite. And I had Jones. I had those are the three that I had because Mahoney's. I think his hat kind of popped up off his head or something like that. It was a weird yeah. little thing. Yeah, it was a weird but a fun line. I really enjoyed it. There were even like mail away figures to get like a Captain Harris or a Sweet Chuck. <laughs> Sweet Chuck. Oh, wow. That's a good good pull. Holy moly. Now, there are some cool homemade heroes custom figures being shown here, like a shiny Captain Atom figure. He said they combined a Silver Surfer body and a Magneto head. I was like, these people are genius. They just see it in their minds. There's also somebody called Oddball. I do not know who Oddball is. So if somebody could look that up, get to us on social media, tell us what comics line that came from. It sounds like it had to be a character from like the 40s or something like that and the way it looks but also somebody created a very impressive spawn toy out of a secret wars spider-man but this is like years before the todd mcfarlane line of spawn toys would come out but i was like you could do that with a spider-man that i mean it, it looks really really good it's very impressive that brian isn't like reporting a whole lot of toy news in his toy column he's talking about how it's going to change and he's got so much coming but he he does bring up this interesting comment he says image is hoarding talent and hoping for good product, while Marvel is not hyping talent, but the product itself. Image has all the hot artists, and everybody's following the artists and hoping they produce something as good as the books they worked on at Marvel. While Marvel doesn't have the talent anymore, but they have the licenses, they have the Spider-Mans, they have the X-Men, they have all those things, and so now they're creating the animated series, they're creating the toys and all those things. So I wanted to propose to you guys, does one work better than the other? Do you feel like it's better to have great talent and produce just a new thing from them or do you think it's better to just have a solid concept that's time tested and yes okay now you know whoever's writing it or drawing it people know who it is so you you automatically love it that's tough yeah i mean i I think it depends on if it's like an ongoing sort of thing or if you're launching you know if you're launching a new property i think sometimes it pays to have that big splashy name and things like that but i think if you're already hauling along maybe it's better to just have somebody who's a little bit established and they're just kind of doing the work so i think honestly it's harder to create an entirely new character as opposed to making a legacy character and what i mean is i'm going to use brian michael bendis as an example who created Miles Morales and Miles Morales is probably one of the most popular Marvel characters currently and maybe of ever in the, in the last 20 years and he's a legacy character but he still has his own identity and his own sort of thing and even his powers are a little bit different than Peter Parker's and that character is colossal and he's 
He's going to be in his own video game in a year or so. And then on the, on the flip side with DC, Jeff Johns created Jessica Cruz as a, the newest Green Lantern. And she's incredibly popular to the point where I think she almost overshadows Hal Jordan sometimes currently in the books. It's it's a little strange because it's, it's so hard for them to come up with an original character. Unless you look at somebody like Kirkman who created The Walking Dead. And that was, is a phenomenon all of itself. I think what it is is with anything is you have to hit it at the right moment and sometimes that doesn't hit and believe it or not i don't know if you know this but in october the grifter is coming back to dc comics and all of his team they're coming back and they're going to be teaming up with batman what wildcats and batman yeah It's coming out uh, in October. Wild Bats. <laughs> wow, that is some breaking news land scene. Okay, we'll keep an eye out. But uh, speaking of Image hyping their talent, Michael, let's boot up Robin Todd's Hype Machine. Alrighty, you guys really have been enjoying this mathematical journey down wizard's history when it comes to robin todd so this is kind of interesting because the boys are barely mentioned in this issue outside of young blood number one landing in the number 10 spot of the top hottest books coming out right now spawn suspiciously is omitted when it was in the number four spot in the previous month and i, I wonder why that is that's a little peculiar a letter from from a reader named Ara Thompson challenging Wizard for promoting Marvel, Image, and Valiant, but dissing DC. Yeah, Michael, this letter here sounds like you went back in time and wrote a letter under an assumed name, because this is what you have been espousing for many, many episodes. I think you should read this short letter real quick, and let's see how close it adheres to to your philosophy. Alright, so, Dear Wizard, I would like to tell you how much I like your magazine, but... After your last four issues, I was very disappointed. In those issues, I noticed the constant beating down of DC Comics and the wide promotion of Marvel, Image, and Valiant Comics, plus constant praise of Rob Liefeld's art and comic series. I personally like DC Comics and their Impact series. Do not get me wrong. I like Wizard very much. It is just that I am tired of the promotion of Marvel Comics and the dissing of DC Comics. I am sure other Wizard readers would agree with me. Ara Thompson, Seabrook, Maryland. This does feel like something I would say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I just love the, the first couple lines here. Wizard's response is, We do cover a great deal of Marvel Image and Valiant news in our book, but that's pretty much what Wizard is all about. We report on the hot, up-to-the-minute news of the comic book world. And if it seems that DC is in the backseat, well, that's where they've placed themselves. <laughs> oh. wow. So they're just laying the smack down. They are not backing down. It's like, oh, they did it. They don't produce hot books. They suck. Wow. And I wonder if they're going to change their tune once we get to what we're going to be talking about soon is a a particular book that's coming out. 
So, as of this issue, Rob is mentioned four times, and Todd is mentioned three times for a total of Rob at 93 and Todd at 86. So, Rob is really moving forward. I just, I can't, for the life of me, figure out why. It just drives me crazy. It's one of those things that keeps me up at night. I'm like, I don't get it. But anyway... That's our hype machine. So, Adam, what do we've got in Guy Gardner's Gimmicks A Go Go? How bizarre! So this is some big stuff. We haven't done this segment in a little while, but it seems like they were just saving it up. So there is this bombastic ad, this just huge deal, announcing the release of Bloodshot number one. But the ad itself declares, quote, ships in November with the world's first chromium cover by Barry Windsor Smith. This is it. I mean, this is the birth of Chromium right here. The official (laughs) moment where it all started. We use that as a buzzword now and a joke, you know, the Chromium age. But it sounds like Valiant are the ones who created the term. They're the ones who created the concept. If not, they're at least the ones that decided to claim they were the first. So that's a big deal. We found it right here. Now, it's crazy, though, speaking of Valiant that there is not an alternate cover for this issue. The reason I say that is, so you guys might recall from issue seven, there was an Exo Manowar cover and a Flash cover, right? And so people thought, well, then nobody's going to know who Exo Manowar is, so we'll put a Flash cover out there. But in this issue, the fact that they do not have a Predator versus Magnus robot fighter cover astounds me because this is the first Dark Horse Valiant crossover and it is ridiculously over-promoted in this issue. Okay, there are two ads. One is a full color on the back of the poster for this book. One is a black and white full-page ad announcing four exclusive trading cards. Two are being packed in Predator Magnus issue number two, but the other two are only available as a Wizard exclusive polybagged with issue 16 of Wizard next month. Plus, there's a full article on Dark Horse with the Predator front and center. It's also mentioned in the opening paragraph of the Wizard's Crystal Ball feature. And then on the next page after that feature, it's the first book listed on the picks from the Wizard's hat. I mean, this is just overkill. Predator versus Magnus Robot Fighter. So much so, I had to order this book. Because I saw this, I'm like, if they are putting this much into it, it had to have been a big deal. So I read this first issue, and it is very nice. I mean, it's got some great art. It's some decent writing. Interestingly enough, you know, we announced last issue that Jim Shooter had left Valiant. He provided the plot for this. So this must have been like the last thing Jim Shooter did for Valiant was create a reason for the Predator and Magnus Robot Fighter to come together. And I mean, it's a pretty interesting idea. And I think it's the reason the Predator works so well in all these crossovers, whether it was Batman or Aliens or whoever, because, you know, the Predators travel all around the universe to hunt. The Predator just kind of shows up because he wants to get a trophy that was denied him and the trophy is an exo armor helmet so now I actually want to read, you know, issue two, because I'm like, wait, wait, this ties in with Exo Manowar too? So that got me excited. You know, we're not doing a full Punisher's Price Guide. I did look up this issue. I'm like, again, it 
was being hyped did it work and no this book sells for about six to eight bucks it's not hard to find and so predator versus magnus robot fighter if it's your favorite crossover of all time you let us know <laughs> and then i'll just mention really quickly other gimmicks that are being released this month there's silver surfer number 75 with a silver embossed cover and ren and stimpy number one which is polybagged they don't mention this in wizard but i just happen to know with an air fowler instead of an air freshener because you know red and stimpy are gross but it was basically just like you would put on your car rear view mirror but it smelled bad and i wrote about it in an article here on the retro network called 10 awesome comic book gimmicks of the 90s if you guys want to check out that article on the retro network website you could enjoy it but yeah so a whole lot of gimmicks going on it's heating up again it felt like they were holding back but not anymore so I don't know if you know this, but just as of a couple of days ago, Marvel has bought the rights for Predator and Alien, and they're going to start publishing new stories of Predator and Alien in Marvel Comics. And there is rumors that there is going to be a Predator versus Alien versus Iron Man book coming out next year. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> That'll be awesome. Where do you guys land on Predator versus Alien? Michael's afraid of him. We know <laughs> that much. <laughs> yes, I am. Terrifying. <laughs> I'm definitely more of a Predator guy because they just seem more evolved. They seem to have more of a mission. They seem to have more, you know what I'm saying? Like the aliens just kind of are. They're just spawn that go out and are destroying and breeding, you know, whereas Predator are like, oh, no, no, we're a noble race and we like to do some hunting. Yeah, you and I are on the same page. I loved Predator. I've seen them. I think like aliens might have better movies, at least like two, whereas Predator has one good movie. But, you know, still. I think as a general concept, I think that's why Predator has lasted. What are you saying? The one with Danny Glover is not good? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> that's actually the one I saw first, and I actually really like kind of fell for Predator um, at that point. And then I had to go back and find the Arnold Schwarzenegger one after that. Well, I think as we close out the show here, you alluded to it earlier, Michael, but uh, let's check out Robin's Reading Rainbow. Major comic book releases this month, including The Incredible Hulk, number 400, Deathstroke the Terminator, number 17, which features a new costume. Ooh, hubba hubba. <laughs> the Titans sellout special, What If, number 44, a personal excitement for Adam. What if the Punisher had been possessed by Venom? Yeah, that's a favorite for me, yeah. Ravage 2099, number one. Yeah, well, I'll be reviewing that on the mini episode, so keep an ear out, folks. But tonight we're going to be talking about Superman, Man of Steel, number 18, the first full appearance of Doomsday. So I actually have this issue somewhere in my long boxes in the basement, and I remember this issue mostly from the cover, because the cover was just so cool, and it was like, oh, this is something different, and you didn't actually see what Doomsday looked like pretty much for the entire issue. He's pretty covered. The thing that I was a little bit disappointed by, I thought the art for this issue was 
very lackluster for how big of a deal Doomsday was going to become. Like, it wasn't really anything to write home about. It wasn't really breathtaking or captivating. There's a lot of slow parts in the story. The most interesting parts, honestly, I think at the beginning of him breaking out of the, the cage or wherever the underground yeah, bunker I mean, like, is. That's fascinating that the first four pages literally of the comic are just his fist punching against a steel door and it's just his glove ripping more and more and more as his protruding bone claws just kind of come through there. I mean, it, and all it is, it's just crang, 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 croom. <laughs> I mean, the, the automata Pia in here to the Krakoobs and finally <laughs> Crack-a-doom! <laughs> I mean, it's it's awesome. But yeah, the art, Michael, like you said, this John Bogdanov is a guy that I don't really enjoy his art. I was just reading an old Superman annual and he did a segment in there as well. And yeah, I, I didn't really care for the art, but yeah, just the, the panel layouts, at least in the Doomsday stuff, are fascinating yeah for the perspective of again it tells you nothing he just is there and that mystery there it's something so engaging you're just like what is this guy he's crushing birds in his yeah. hands and laughing about it that was one of the coolest moments was was the the bird thing i didn't remember that and i was like wow that's that's a real bold statement to say about this character now the thing i want to point out is apparently lois lane is like a ninja because she's like yeah. sca- scaling some sort of scaffolding. She's doing like a, a seven foot high roundhouse kick to some creature. And I didn't know she was a martial artist. I mean, I knew she's a, a tough lady, but I never knew she was a martial artist that could do that kind of moves. I, that to me was on, honestly the coolest part of the whole issue was seeing other than the very beginning was seeing her in action. Superman is almost like an afterthought in this whole issue. Other than the fact that like, I, I think at some point that creature, I, I don't remember what it was called i think superman kills him he like throws his fist in his mouth and the guy is like his head kind of explodes a little bit and he falls to the well, ground was- this creature that he's fighting keeps saying i'm invincible inside and out and he keeps mentioning it over and over again so i think that was to let us know that when he shoves a bomb in his mouth it won't kill him because he's indestructible inside and out. And that's the weird thing about this, because this is where the Superman books were at this point. I mean, if you look at the issue before it, which I also read, because I was like, okay, was there any lead up to Doomsday? Well, the, the issue before it is just, it's about these underworlders and warworlders, which are just like these subterranean races that are battling each other. And it's just like, really? Like, that's what Superman was all about at this point? And so it's kind of like, the, the only thing you get in that previous issue is... The the first page of this issue with the crang 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 so you see doomsday's fist hitting the wall and then it just says you know doomsday is coming so yeah but it's just like the fact that if you were buying it just for the superman story there's nothing to latch on to like you said secret agent lois lane is much cooler and then yeah just this preview of doomsday which i don't know that we knew like doomsday is coming okay like we haven't seen anything in previous issues to get wizard excited at least that superman is dying like there's no promotion of that at all like None. you would think that would be a huge thing and it, over the next two months that whole event is happening and we're going to cover the death of superman special here in, in a couple episodes as a special episode uh, once this all blows over but yeah i mean it's just it's weird that they're what like because they're doing all like oh executioner song is coming out they're doing full articles on it and like everything marvel like you say like they're they're giving you a full spread dc is killing superman and there is no promotion 
emotion around that? None. What did you think, Pete? This is one of those weird comic issues where it might as well be two completely separate comics because they're doing the elsewhere thing with Doomsday. And frankly, to me reading this, all the compelling stuff is with Doomsday. You know, like there's the whole other little side story. Like you say, you have to either go back and have a little bit more context to who some of these characters are or why they're, you know, ending up where they are in this subterranean battle and everything like that. There's the little boy that's like trying to lead him with like this like glow in the dark paint. I'm like, I don't know these people, you know, like, and like, as you said, Michael, like Lois is like in this like weird, wacky 90s outfit with like primary red hair and doing kicks. And I'm like, this is like, it's really a little bit weird so I don't know I was very into the doomsday end of this comic and sort of everything that he's got going on I'm a little curious why he's letting himself still be like all strapped in and if he's punching himself through walls and through the earth and things like that rather than just like trying to rip all the (laughs) rest of the hoses and things off himself although I know ultimately how it kind of eventually gets to um, death of Superman because uh, funny enough I had bought that as a weird little box set from a box store we had in New York at Caldors back in that point in time and I intended to give it to a friend for their birthday and I ended up opening it and reading it myself so I, I got there but yeah it's it's a very weird intro to a character who becomes like a big mainstay in the Superman history like death of Superman big 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 story arc and this feels like such a weird way to intro that character well I think they're showing how tough he is by he could do it all with one arm behind his That's back fair. you know he's like because he's punching down a whole parking garage he's like he punches out a support and a parking garage falls and he laughs and then there's a semi that looks like Optimus Prime barreling at him on the road and he just punches it and it just like he just destroys it so you're just like whoa like he's super unstoppable but yeah you know nothing about him he's just got his full green bodysuit on and his goggles but we don't want to get too deep into the reveal of, of everything to do with the death of superman but the idea that this happened so quickly i honestly i thought this was like a huge multi-month event happening and really here it's happening between like november and december of 1992 that's it because there were so many superman books it's like okay here's these parts and they're happening and then uh, now he's dead and you're like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> Doomsday came in, did his job. See you later. You're dead too. There were a lot of Superman books at that time. There was a lot. There's another little weird moment in this issue where Superman's like about to punch some guy, but he's like a mortal. And I'm like, what? Superman A would never punch a mortal guy. And in that panel, like Lois Lane kind of like kicks him in the rear end or like. <laughs> Zhuzhes him in the butt, but but her hands are still tied up. And I'm like, wouldn't he have like broken away the restraints from her first? It's a I know. Peculiar. She's like, don't you dare punch out Charlie. He's the reason we knew about the Underworlder schemes. We did. <laughs> like Superman's just like, oh, uh, yeah. Well, that, I love that too. And that's another one of these ones where, like, again, I don't remember what the technology was at that moment in time, but he's like, oh, I got left a computer message. How fancy and technological. <laughs> and then it's like, oh yes, the computer, right? I guess they never bothered to read the computer message, so he ended up there via that kid telling him how to get there anyway. So weird. Beep, bop, boop. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I personally think, like you said, if they had just released this as a separate book, don't bother wrapping up all your underworld shenanigans. Just even just do like as a doomsday separate comic that came polybagged with this issue of Man of Steel that just was like you know a seven or eight page with all those pages in it. Doomsday is just destroying a bunch of stuff. I feel like that would have been way more interesting because people were like, oh, the Doomsday issue of Superman, it just would have 
have been its own little mythical piece of the puzzle, something like that. But either way, I still think, you know, that uh, it, it's a cool way to build the mystery about this character who literally is coming out of nowhere and will, like you say, be such a big part of the Superman history going forward. Pete, thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. No, thank you so sincerely for having me. I, I'm so happy to be a part of it. Glad we got a little bit more insight into your friendship there. Is there anything that you do online that you'd like to promote? You know, I, I'm a little bit of a photographer here in New York, so if somebody wants to pop by and say hello, you can find me at Pete Labrosi on Instagram. But otherwise, I'm, I'm keeping things quiet at the moment. <laughs> All right. Well, and we want to thank everybody for listening. We love interacting with you on our social media. So be sure to find us at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. Of course, the Retro Network is the place you found the show already. But if you're out there promoting it, sharing it with your friends, make sure you tell them about the Retro Network podcast feed because we don't have our own separate feed and people try to search Wizards. Hopefully they find us, but we just want to make sure they know how to find us and keep an ear out for that mini episode. We have uh, so much more of this issue we didn't get to, so Michael will bring that to you and I'll be there as well with the 2099 hotline telling you all about Ravage. Ooh, I know you're excited. <laughs> Adam, do you want to tease what's coming up as, a, as another bonus episode? Okay, that's a good point, Michael. So we actually made a post on social media, speaking of which, the other day, and we happened to attract the attention of several wizard staff members. That's right, we have actual wizard staffers who have agreed to be interviewed and be a part of the Wizards the Podcast Guide to Comics programming. So you're going to get some information right from the source, so we can't wait to bring those to you. So we will uh, also keep teasing that and keep you posted, but man, it's working. We're finding them. And they're just as excited to tell us about what they went through. Yeah, congratulations to you guys. You know, you guys have done a really great job with this podcast, so keep up the good work. Thanks, appreciate it. And until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.